Hey everybody, uh, this is the last time I'm going to be doing this because going forward most of these compendium episodes are going to be two-parters. For this episode we did Halloween Havoc and we split it into talking about the big picture aspects of the ways in which Halloween Havoc defines wrestling and WCW in particular. And then on the second half of the episode, we were going to be doing what we used to call essential viewings. Uh, we are going to be talking about specific matches and talking about their historical significance to the event, to the history of wrestling, and to WCW. So uh, hopefully you enjoy both. Um, we changed it up a little bit this week uh, with the song, which you'll see in a second. But once uh, Dog of War starts, starts playing at the end, uh, that's when you know that uh, the episode has ended. Uh, we will be releasing part two tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. So hopefully you enjoy. Oh man, Trey, look up at the sky. It's a full moon on the Sabbath. This is scary. Break it down. I was working late on my half Torah when I heard a knock on my bedroom door. I opened it up. And to my surprise, there was a werewolf standing there with glowing gold eyes. He says, tomorrow, my son, you will be a man. But tonight's the time to join the Wolfen Clan. Tomorrow, you will stand at the beamer and pray. But tonight, let's gaze at the moon and bathe. Werewolf for mitzvah, spooky, scary. Boys becoming men, men becoming men. song you just heard is Werewolf Bar Mitzvah by Tracy Jordan of the girly show with Tracy Jordan. And that's because we have a spooky episode today, Dave. I'm David. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halloween. Yeah. Whoa, you really caught me off guard there. What are we doing? Pulling the rug right out from under me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just so excited because we're doing Halloween Havoc, which is uh, having watched all of them in order, basically. What a... What a pay-per-view series that was. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I mean, wrestling is always kind of a uh, sexy, violent costume party to begin with. So when you put the explicit uh, banner of Halloween over that, you you definitely get some wild stuff. Yeah, it is crazy how much cognitive dissonance you get watching Halloween wrestling they're already wearing a costume <laughs> then they're wearing costumes that reference their character it's it's super meta and i know we use that word a lot but literally the reason john cena became john cena is because he once played vanilla ice on an episode the halloween episode of smackdown so like halloween in wrestling has always had it has like a history of doing weird things and letting people shine in ways they wouldn't normally. But Halloween Havoc in particular is this weird, like when people think about crazy wrestling gimmicks, I think they're thinking mostly about Halloween Havoc matches. Coal miner's glove. <laughs> yes, exactly. The coal miner's glove on a pole match is... Or the whole spin the wheel, make the deal concept, really. Yeah, exactly. They, they have that. They have Thunderdome, which is from the first Halloween Havoc, which we'll be talking about later. Uh, they have Chamber of Horrors, which is the, the third year, I believe. Uh, and then they, and my favorite from 1995, which is the Monster Truck Sumo match. And we're going to be talking about all of these later, but these are the kind of matches 
when TV shows make jokes about how over-the-top wrestling is, these are the matches they're talking about. Yeah, you just named at least two matches with implied death as the finish, right? Both the monster truck one uh, and the uh, Abbey electric chair one. <laughs> and then Thunderdome, which is like a blatant Mad Max ripoff. <laughs> oh yeah, like I, you could, not only could you not get away with that today, I don't think you could have gotten away with that in like 1991. I think they oh, probably owned the rights to the movie. <laughs> They're like, fuck you guys, we're calling it that. The thing with Halloween Havoc for me in particular is the the way in which the announcers kind of throw the whole thing off. It reminds me in a lot of different ways of another costume party involving wrestling, which was WrestleMania 9, where like you realize only in those moments like how important it is for people to look professional i don't want to say they don't i'm not like they can't have fun at a wrestling show wrestling shows have to be serious the level to which they are having fun is kind of it's it's not disconcerting but it makes it hard to have serious matches in front of no definitely when you say halloween havoc and i shut my eyes and i envision the opening of a halloween havoc I'm seeing the camera, you know, sweep the crowd in the ramp with the spooky set. And then they're going to a stand-up two-shot of Tony and Jesse. And they're wearing goofy costumes and giving each other a hard time about their goofy costumes and pulling on each other's masks and, and making jocular jokes about costumes. Like, that's what I think about when I think of the opening seconds of a Halloween Havoc. Not a great wrestling uh, moment or not even a uh, great Halloween moment necessarily, but two middle-aged dudes uh, having the awkward conversation by the punch bowl at the Halloween party. Yeah, and it's one of those things where looking back, it's funny and fun, but I had imagined watching it live, you'd have been like, what the fuck is going on? It's like watching the Christmas episodes of WWE in particular, uh, have a tendency to like involve Santa and shit like that, which I always find disconcerting. Like one year Santa got murdered by Alberto Del Rio and then Cena had to fight Alberto Del Rio to like honor the memory of Santa Claus. <laughs> I'll still never forgive them for the Bray Wyatt Dean Ambrose Christmas match on SmackDown. And that was probably four or five years ago now. I'm so bad with years as we were saying before we started taping. But I remember that freaking Christmas match with them literally throwing each other into fake trees and then tossing transparently empty cardboard boxes at each other and like selling them as though they were filled with heavy gifts. It was just like, I, I could not watch wrestling for a while after seeing that match. I remember it being one of the truly uh, gruesome moments in my wrestling viewership history. And that idea of mixing a holiday and wrestling is really something that could work to its advantage if done properly. Like, I actually think, for instance, the Survivor Series connection with, like, Thanksgiving and family kind of would work. I know you're not as big a fan of Survivor Series, but, like... I hear you defending the shit out of the gobbledygooker right now. That's what I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, like, I don't mind... I, I am obviously a major WWE homer, especially relative to WCW, but I felt like Halloween Havoc's entire gimmick was it took place around Halloween, where Survivor Series had a gimmick and a theme. I guess that's what it is. It had a gimmick and a theme where Halloween Havoc is just a theme. No, certainly. Although I think we did get, you know, we did get skits on some of the Survivor series with people in little hats with buckles sitting around wooden tables and crap like that. I mean, 
when we talk about this kind of awkward playtime backstage aesthetic, uh, that was going on in the late 80s in the WWE. Oh, totally. But it's crazy that it, it persisted way more into the mid-90s in WCW, definitely. But I, but I think it was almost kind of borrowed from some of that Hogan-era stuff, like the, the Liz and Savage wedding, the backstage food fights, like all those kind of classic rock and wrestling or late-80s bits kind of lived on through Halloween Havoc well into the mid-90s. And it also just feels like a, like a, a holiday episode for a television show because uh, a lot of these Halloween Havocs have title matches they're important pay-per-views halloween havoc was one of the first of an expansion of pay-per-views for wcw so 1983 to 1984 they just had starcade and then in 1985 they introduce great american bash and then in 1989 they have great american bash wrestle war the shy town rumble halloween havoc and starcade so they, they go from two to five. And uh, the previous year or two years earlier, they had the Bunkhouse Stampede. But they have this expansion that like coincides with the WWF's expansion. And on the WWF side, they kind of have a more a slightly more gradual. They go from WrestleMania. They also have the Wrestling Classic, which I do not count as a pay-per-view because the main event is Junkyard Dog versus Randy Savage. Uh, I refuse. I'm sorry. It's basically a pilot. It's a pilot for the concept of like a non-WrestleMania pay-per-view. Yeah. And then you have WrestleMania 2 in 86, which is the only thing that happens that year. And then the next year, as a like a rebound off of WrestleMania 3, they have the Survivor Series, which has the first Survivor Series elimination style matches. Uh, and then you have the next year, they add SummerSlam. Basically for the same reason, they're just trying to keep the momentum from WrestleMania that year going, but they're doing it or earlier. And then the next year in 1989, when you see also see this big explosion for WCW, uh, you add the Royal Rumble. And I, I feel like it's at that point where pay-per-view is kind of fully established as the new monthly, I, I like this will sound obvious to you, Dave, but the new monthly show, like people in New York used to watch the monthly Bruno San Martino main event at the garden kind of, you know, like that was what people anticipated for wrestling shows. And now you had it for most months or for at least half the year, you had this big event that like culminated a bunch of storylines. Uh, and it, it changed, I think the way that wrestling stories were told. Oh, it changed the whole business, man. I mean, really, the second you're doing pay-per-views regularly and not once or twice a year, really, it, you can still make money on the house shows and sell t-shirts at the house shows, and WWE still does a great job of that. But it, once they expanded the idea of pay-per-view, they really changed what the business was. It used to be that the TV show was to set up the house shows. Now the TV shows are to set up the pay-per-views and the house shows are just this other side thing where you can also make money. Yes, and I think that the WWF, their goal was because for the most part, uh, especially relative to WCW, they were a traveling circus and a wrestling, like a sports entertainment company, where WCW, especially at the beginning of the expansion going forward, are much more, like, they literally have credits 
at the end, rolling credits at the end of their pay-per-views starting, I think, in 89, if I remember correctly. It's definitely 90. They they have rolling credits with, like, executive producer Virgil Runnels. It's their breaking kayfabe by, like, being, this is a television show we're producing. And I think that's why they have what they have, which is they have a 4th of the July themed party. They have a Halloween party. They have WrestleMania, which is... Starcade, they have War Games, which is like a gimmick pay-per-view, and then they have this weird thing for a couple of years where they have like the Shy Town Rumble, and then they have the DC, the Capital Showdown, and then they have the Super Show in Japan, and then they have they come have a couple of super shows in Japan, and then they I believe they have a North Korea super show that's kind of uh one of like the last international super shows. But that's kind of the pattern they have, and they add and subtract, but they never quite got past Halloween Havoc really for me at least as that third pay-per-view in the way that you had WrestleMania and you had SummerSlam and you had the you had the big four of uh those two in the Royal Rumble and Survivor Series as like that's what WWF was every year and that for WCW never kind of came to fruition for me Halloween Havoc was weird because it was a themed thing like I said but it also was a really important pay-per-view in their calendar. Yeah, you said a lot of stuff there. I mean, there's there's a lot to kind of unpack with the differences in the uh, WWF and WCW pay-per-view strategy. But the one thing that uh, Eric Bischoff talked about on his podcast, 83 Weeks, uh, recently, was that Dusty's vision for pay-per-view really was that every pay-per-view uh, should have a distinct personality, that it shouldn't just be another super card that every one of them should have a theme, that that was very much part of the original plan. So like, that's why they have, you know, they, they have the Halloween Havoc, which is very heavily themed. They have Great American Bash, which is very heavily themed. They did Fall Brawl, where they did the War Games every year, you know, and that was another one that I would put maybe up into that kind of top tier that you were talking about. Because I mean, War Games was a huge thing for for Crockett slash WCW. Yeah, but I think uh, in particular, uh, the reason I didn't include that is because it goes from Wrestle War to Fall Brawl and moves from May to the fall. Like they never kind of locked in that season. I guess Bash the Beach would be the one like where they start to kind of get their act together. But it ends so quickly after that, you don't have the extra 20 years of cachet that the WWE now has. Yeah, I mean, another thing you mentioned was the the credits. And, and those appeared, like you said, you know, around 89 or 90, right around the time that they were transitioning into, you know, full Turner ownership, into being WCW rather than Crockett. And, and I think you were seeing a couple of impulses there. I think, number one, you were seeing wrestling people like Virgil Runnels, as you said, and later Eric Bischoff, you were seeing those wrestling personalities style themselves as TV producers. You know what I mean? Like considering themselves to, to be like producing these big specials that are like important TV spectacles, not a wrestling show that hardcore wrestling fans are paying for because they buy the shows out of habit, which is basically what pay-per-view eventually became. But, but I think you saw both wrestling people trying to act more like TV people. And I think that's why you see some of this campy gimmickry because like that's the carnival mirror that wrestling is looking at television through, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's still this kind of anachronism where like wrestling is 10 to 20 years behind. And certainly like we talked about Bobby Heenan, like Bobby Heenan was still doing vaudeville shtick in the nineties. You know what I mean? So, so you had a wrestling business through these theme shows trying to kind of make itself into a kind of, a kind of spectacle 
which just kind of came across as a little weird, you know, seeing the same styrofoam tombstones every day. Uh, but then I think it also speaks to the TV people trying to get their hands on the wrestling. So you have wrestling people who want to be TV people, and you have TV people who think they know better than the wrestling people. And when those two forces combine, I think that's when you can get some really crappy, campy stuff that really hurts what you've established. And I agree with you, like you were talking about the war games getting kind of cheap ended by moving around and them kind of changing the, the rules in the later years and changing the number of people on the teams, et cetera, et cetera. Like over time, they couldn't help but water down what I think they actually did a really good job establishing in the first year or two of their pay-per-view strategy. I, I would go so far to say that the first Halloween Havoc is like a, a pretty great, pay-per-view for the era like it's a lot of there's some goofy ass matches on that card uh there's tommy rich squashing the cuban assassin uh getting booed by everybody like if you think that john cena gets booed by adult males you gotta hear what tommy rich was getting in 1989 (laughs) yeah tommy rich and i've said to you a couple of times off mic he's a weird looking dude he is a weird looking dude. He looks, you know, those things you get, uh, those ads where they're like, you'll never believe what he looks like now. <laughs> or like plastic surgery has ruined. And it's like, that's what Tommy Rich looks like to me. The picture you're going to see on that website that's going to make you go, oh God, why did I click on that ad? You're hoping it's the before picture, but it's actually the after picture. As you said to me, uh, what I... Uh, they hated him so much that they booed him beating the Cuban assassin. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the match is so flat that JR and Cottle are trying to stall for time by explaining the logistics of the uh, embargo against Cuba. <laughs> and that's how hot the match is. Yeah, it is not. Like, I actually like, I like the, um, I don't know how you felt about it, but uh, the Tom Zink Mike Rotunda match at the beginning of it. I, I like Mike Rotunda. I thought it was a fun match. Uh, I actually really like the Samoan SWAT team, Midnight Express, and Dr. Death Steve Williams match. How over was Steve Williams? My goodness. He was doing his little run in place on the apron, and like people were losing their shit. He got in the ring, and he was doing his little jabs, you know what I mean? Which I always think is like the lightest looking punch, that like Terry Funk, you know, road dog jab. And people, every time he hits one of them, people are like jumping out of their seats. They're like losing their shit for him doing his just like running tackles and stuff. My my mind was really blown watching this show for the first time in a while, seeing how over Dr. Death was. Because I mean, like the narrative is that, you know, the UWF Crockett merger happens and like he and Terry Taylor and all those guys just go die. And that that was definitely not the case here. He was over like fucking crazy it was it was really impressive to watch yeah i remember growing up what little i knew about what you little you knew about wcw if you were not a wcw fan like dr death steve williams was one of the people like at least were like from video games and stuff like that like he was someone that like i was aware of but never actually saw wrestle until i got the network because he like Dr. Death just sounds it's that same idea of they're what you think of when you think of over the top wrestling shit. But Dr. Death was awesome. Like he wasn't an over the top. He was an over the top wrestling person like persona, but in the way like Brock Lesnar is not in the way that like Papa Shango is. No, Lesnar's a good comparison. He's like also kind of a weird average of Rick Steiner and Hulk Hogan. 
<laughs> yeah, that's actually because he's he has incredible charisma and like physical charisma in particular. But uh, he um, has a weird hairy monster person look. <laughs> yeah, he's got the thing where like I think he's got some bangs going on, but like it kind of makes it look like he has no forehead, which just like accentuates <laughs> the severity of some of his of his more terrifying features. No, definitely true. And I think what he kind of represents is this. And I think this pay-per-view overall represents the struggle between the NWA's legacy and the WC, what WCW wanted to be. Like the idea of them wanting to have real wrestling and have a television show about a wrestling company at the same time. And like this pay-per-view is one of the the real like microcosms of that struggle there's there's sort of a three-headed beast going on when you watch this show like you can see that the company is being pulled in a lot of different directions like there's there's still these like kind of ties you know back to the nwa and the crockett legacy on one hand kind of you know a foot in that pool still then there's the pull i agree as you're saying towards more of kind of like a proto reality tv show about a show kind of direction and then as we get, we start to see here what would happen in the early 90s, which is a, a push towards the WWF direction, like the Jim Hurd, the cartoony characters stuff. So definitely, I think you can see a war going on for WCW soul at the time of this show. And I mean, the roster was really bloated too at this point, like I said, from the acquisition of, uh, of Mid-South. Uh, so I, I think it was definitely a, a crucial moment in the company's history. And I think the uh, there's two really good examples of that. Uh, the fabulous Freebirds, who were not, they were more in, uh, famous for being involved with WCCW. I think it's fair to say, right? But they were also NWA, or no, they were never affiliated. Like I can never remember if WCCW was is world class. Uh, they wrestled. They wrestled in NWA territories. They also wrestled in Mid South. But the the Jimmy Jam and Michael Hayes version of the Freebirds was like specifically the WCW version. But yeah, the Freebird the Freebirds had wrestled in NWA territory. And they uh, they were working against the Dynamic Dudes, who to me are the quintessential early 90s w or like late 80s early 90s wcw tag team yeah definitely they're also that kind of sad uh early 90s wcw where you're like i bet there's some iteration of these guys that looks good but this isn't it and you can see the gimmick just like eating away at their ability to to have a match you know it, it, it it's hard to watch but I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, in a match that I really, really liked, especially for the level to which everyone was insane on steroids, was the the Road Warriors skyscrapers match. Sid Vicious in that match looks like he is he is a, a fucking RoboCop cyborg. It is ridiculous what that dude looks like. And I think it works against the Road Warriors. There's that amazing moment where it's, the skyscrapers come out first and then Iron Man hits. And it's so awesome because WWE actually got the rights to do the sound alike of Iron Man that Crockett made. <laughs> so they, they at least have a sound alike of Iron Man. And the Road Warriors come out and they get like nose to nose. Hawk gets in the ring and he gets nose to nose with Sid. And Sid is like five, six inches taller than Hawk. But Hawk is just up against him, like jawing with them, just like face to face, just like both of them with these scowls on their face. It, it, you really can't get much better of a pro wrestling visual than, than those four guys in the ring. Well, maybe not Dan Spivey, but 
Anyway. It's a really, I think it's a really good match too. Like those guys, young Sid was when he gave a shit, a really talented guy his size, especially for the era. I don't think he was at the level of like a Scott Hall or a Undertaker, but he could definitely like work a match with two guys who aren't, technical masters and have it totally work so can i drop kind of a nerdy deep cut on you nick sure have you ever noticed that sid vicious bumps like one of moolah's girls that when he when he takes a back bump rather than kicking both of his feet up and falling to his shoulders he kicks one of his feet up leans back on the other till he's about two-thirds of the way down and then straightens that foot up he yeah well you gotta make sure he does a, he, he does a flat back like he was trained by the fabulous moolah <laughs> he I gotta let it gotta let her down easy is is his <laughs> is his motto and i, I believe that i believe that uh, yeah that that's who abraham lincoln was talking about <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Both of them, actually. Both said Vish, Vishai, I believe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I totally get why the next year, I think it is, Sid's in the main event with Sting. Like, it totally makes sense watching that match, why he immediately shot up the card. I don't think it's like a hidden gem or this major revelation, but it's a really great example of what they could have done with the push of the newer generation of guys working with the older generation of guys that I, I also think work comes through a little bit with Lex Luger and Brian Pillman. Yeah, certainly. Or even, even towards the end of the show, even in the main event, like you have, uh, you know, you have Terry Funk there, you know, who's, who's even, even in 1989, the, the elder statesman. Yeah. And I said to you, his look in the 1989 his run in wcw with flair his look is incredible he looks like a guy who wants to get into a fight and could probably win it against most people like he's not blown up out of his mind but he like looks like a he looks like sinewy i guess would be the best way to describe it he looks like a cowboy he looks like a crazed cowboy who's just here to fuck people up. Yeah, he's got that thing where, like, he doesn't really have abs, but his midsection is extremely tight. Like, he just, you know, twists around like a crazy person all day. It, it, it's it's definitely really impressive. I agree. I, I love um, when you get to, like, the flare I quit match and stuff. He's he's not as cut up. He's a little he's a little softer around the edges there, too. But he, he definitely, when you compare what he looked like in, like, 89 to what he looked like, you know, in his ECW run, like, five or six years later, it's no comparison that, like, an early middle-aged Terry Funk was still put together like a bad motherfucker. He didn't look like a crazy old man. He looked like a... And this is what how you described it. He looked like the dude at the bar you wouldn't want to fuck with. Terry Funk really fit that mode of and and they try to do it with stan hansen and a couple of other people but i always thought that terry funk in wcw was the best combination of realistic like a believable sized or or proportioned person who wasn't like stan hansen was a good worker the problem with anybody in wcw especially starting in like 92 was you had to compete with vader and I don't th- like Terry Funk wasn't Vader, of course, but he had that same cachet of believability that Vader did, where I think other guys that were closer to Vader's size didn't because they weren't Vader. Where like Terry Funk, you could see him like biting your face off. Oh, yeah, certainly. I think that was the secret. Like you said, he had a believability 
uh, but the believability was 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 not because you know he he seemed like a like a super accomplished athlete necessarily, although he was, you know what I mean. But but the believability was that he was unhinged, and when someone is crazy, anything is possible, really. So that you have the first one, uh, the first uh, Halloween Havoc, which ends like we said with uh, Great Muda and Terry Funk versus Sting and Ric Flair, which in terms of talent and like star power is a a transcendently great main event main event like on paper it's a pretty good main event in practice uh but to me part of the problem with the match if there's if there is a problem i think it's a really good match is that uh, it starts off with the highest spot possible which is uh this being wcw and <laughs> Sorry. Um, they decorated the Thunderdome, which is where the match takes place between Muda and Funk and Flair and Sting. And, the, and they decorate it with weird, spooky, scary shit. And uh, said spooky, scary shit is placed too close to lighting rigs on the Thunderdome. <laughs> so the Thunderdome sets on fire. And... Uh, <laughs> And they're scrambling because this is a live show. And, like, for a little while, Terry Funk is vamping by, like, climbing and shimmying on the cage. And they're, like, there's stagehands scrambling around. And Muda, who, of course, has the green mist, just walks over to the fire, spits in it, and it goes out. And then they just go back to, like preparing to start the match it's like the best the way in which he just nonchalantly walks over and goes i got this and just spits a bunch of shit at the fire and it goes out immediately it's just so amazing yeah i'm imagining you know gary hart in the corner just being like you gotta go get the miss brother (laughs) and it's it's great to see gary hart uh i really dug that match i really really liked it um, I also really like, although it's not as good, um, the Sting Sid Vicious match at the next paper, uh, the next year. And actually, after that, there's another good main event for Halloween Havoc, which is a, a it's a weirder match, but it's a Lex Luger and Ron Simmons and two out of three falls match. Like all of those are pretty good to very good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they are they are legitimate main events. They are they are serious star wrestlers, and all of those matches are either for a title or have some kind of personal stakes, like the first one. Yeah, and then, um, uh, it's uh, coal miners glove. <laughs> <laughs> I've now made yeah. that joke like twice in this episode and 700 times in the run of the show. <laughs> it's the dumbest fucking thing. I think it's like on the very, very, very short list of the dumbest fucking things to happen in the history of wrestling. You have Jake the Snake Roberts, who's a huge star and an enormous get for WCW. And... They put him in a coal miner's glove on a pole match with Sting. Like, the level to which... And he doesn't even lose the match 
because of the coal miner's glove. He loses the match because his cobra bites him. You can literally see Jake on the camera being like, bite me, bite me, get me, motherfucker, like talking to the snake, trying to get it. And the snake doesn't want to because it likes Jake. It's so, it's so bad. It is bad in a way that like we will get to uh, in the second half of this, um, the, how bad WCW could get almost intentionally. I think this is like the, I can't, pardon the pun. This is the canary in the coal mine of like, Oh man, (laughs) there have been a lot of, wow. That, that might be a new high slash low in wrestling (laughs) podcasting history. (laughs) Um, In terms of like the hokiness of WCW, like the bounds or lack thereof of the hokiness of WCW. Like it's really, and what's crazy is the next year you have Vader and Cactus Jack. And that's a great match too. And like the spin the deal, make the spin the wheel, make a deal gimmick like works for them because they're cartoony in the right way. But I think you're right to point out that like Jake Roberts was this huge get and sting is the franchise. Like, those two people shouldn't be involved in like a spooky game show party game in their first match against each other. Where, whereas, you know, like Mick Foley and Vader, like you knew that you were going to get two guys killing each other or one guy killing the other guy, at least, you know what I mean? So it was like, you know, I don't know. You could put all the gimmicks up there and you could be like, well, whatever stupid gimmick they do, Vader's going to beat Mick Foley half to death. So it's going to be good. You're right to bring up that both had the, the spin the wheel, make, make a deal uh gimmick that's because it is the epitome of a gimmick but what also i don't think it's just the car it's the cartoonish it's just there's a lot less thoughtfulness that was put into wcw's product at the time in terms of ah wrestling fans are rubes just give them whatever and i think you can see in the dichotomy between those two main events the problems with the approach that they had the nwa approach is the death match with vader and cactus jack period the wcw approach is let's put this shit to chance like it's a fucking game show and then have sting and jake roberts in a coal miners glove on a pole match that they have to plan out through the entire night and again ends with Jake falling over because he got bit by his own snake. It's, and I think that's like the, like you said, for the soul of WCW and, and these two years are what lead to the next one, which is Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in a steel cage match for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship with Mr. T as the special guest referee. We forgot to mention, Nick, the appearance of Bruno San Martino, by the way, speaking of special guest referees on the the original Halloween Havoc. That was a little bit of a uh, a, a shot to the ribs from both WCW and Bruno San Martino at the WWF. (laughs) They love parading him around. And... I, I feel like when Hogan comes in, you have this split, and it's a, it's a pretty sizable split, uh, between the undercard of the show being good and the main event just being useless. The undercard for these pay-per-views are all of them, all of them have at least one or two good matches, like actively good to great matches from... 
like we talked about with the skyscrapers legion of doom slash road warriors match uh they call themselves legion of doom at the pay-per-view that's why i don't feel like an asshole for calling them that just then <laughs> and then meanwhile at the legion of doom <laughs> and there there's um chamber of horror show they have this random i mean they have a good steve austin dustin rhodes match for the tv title but since it's a tv title match it's 15 minutes and a hard out basically um they have a bobby eaton versus terrence taylor match that is really really good <laughs> is that him being a fake million dollar man is that him as taylor made man or is he just terrence taylor he is just point? terrence taylor as a part of york the york foundation okay 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 with uh with her with her little uh 80s word processor Yes, her uh, sabermetrics before their sabermetrics gimmick, which is like a, re- a really good gimmick. And yeah, she- <laughs> yeah, it is like legitimate. You're watching. You're like, this should have been ten times more fucking over. Like, this is a really creative way to create a heel. Um, yeah, her, she, she, and woman were both great characters. I was rewatching some of the earlier, watching some of the earlier shows earlier today. I was struck by the two of them, like how well the two of them were used in WCW at the time. Yeah, they really are. It's it's a very like they are used much. Ah, I I will give sensational Sherry credit. She was treated like a person, or she forced them to treat her like a person. But that's a, I mean, she's a force of nature. She was she was incredible. Uh, we will have an entire episode on Sherry at some point. Um, and and you like. You look at that, and also that that also, <laughs> I I had forgotten about this. Um. Brian Pillman, along the same lines, uh, Richard Morton. So you have Terrence Taylor and Richard Morton as part of the York Foundation. And both those matches are really good. And that's a consistent theme. Both the great undercard matches and non-main storyline matches overall are pretty good. Um, But the light heavyweight and cruiserweight matches in particular are really allowed to shine, I think in part because of the showmanship of those matches is really in tune with the showmanship of Halloween Havoc that you don't have inherently at other shows. Well, the the best thing WCW consistently did, the thing that they were really the most successful at when it came to presenting good wrestling was uh, taking really, really talented wrestlers who weren't featured in main storylines and putting them on the first 90 minutes of a pay-per-view with 12 to 15 minutes and allowing them to have really great athletic matches. Like that's kind of what they were always the best at. And I think you're right that as you get closer and closer to the main event, it gets worse and worse or harder and harder to watch. And like each year it get that problem (laughs) seems to get worse and worse. Like from, like you said, you know, there's, there's some kind of like hinky stuff, like you said, like Lex Luger and, and Ron Simmons and stuff. And I've actually watched that match recently and I, I liked the hell out of it uh, way more than I thought I was going to. It, it, the pace of it, I thought was really good. It's kind of in that, yeah. kind of that pace that I like. Uh, Lex Luger is watching uh, Halloween Havoc was apparently his like uh, <laughs> his, I, it was his show. He did a really good job. I think in general, Lex Luger looking back is underrated because we expected things he wasn't from him but like that's a good match but there's just this idea and and it's something that will affect wcw in general is this idea that hogan is the 
only person that matters and any other compare like any other focus on anybody else is not worth your time and even when and they carry it through and i think this is what's weird is they carry it through with goldberg at halloween havoc too because goldberg main events deservedly so to the last two the the two before the last one the penultimate and the one before the penultimate um halloween havocs are Goldberg versus Diamond Dallas Page for the World Championship and Sting versus Goldberg for the World Championship again. And then the last Halloween Havoc is main evented by Goldberg versus Chronic in a handicap elimination match. I tried to watch that show about a year ago. I, 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 I you know, WCW 2000 pay-per-views or something where like if I'm really trying to test like how I feel about wrestling. I'll, I'll put one of those on and see how long it lasts. And, um, I did, I did not make it past, uh, past Reno and, uh, the wall. I, I don't think. Uh, well you missed sting fighting off, I think six different versions of himself in a Jeff Jarrett match. He loses because he gets hit with two or three guitar shots. Broke a thousand guitars. <laughs> Drew a lot of dimes. Fuck you, whichever Graham son you were. I don't remember. Mike Graham. Mike Graham. Fuck you, that, Mike that, Graham. Made the, uh, that made the follow-up files the other week. <laughs> oh, wow. He's made the big the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that, That's probably the most big time moment he's had since he, since he dropped that line in the rise and fall of WCW. <laughs> and I think the other thing with Halloween Havoc for me in particular, and it's kind of a weird, uh, not counterintuitive, but something people don't think about a lot is the fact that the last five Halloween Havocs all take place at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's like, you couldn't have been more, like, you couldn't have been lazier or more on the nose with having this pay-per-view in that city if you, like literally just had it and I, I i'm trying to think of an analogy <laughs> like like you couldn't it could not be more on the nose yeah yeah if you uh let's say you were hosting halloween havoc in an abandoned a cheap ambition warehouse <laughs> no, no yeah like a party city like. yeah, seriously and one of those spirit halloween stores that just pops up in like an empty kmart every year <laughs> Yes, exactly. No, I, it's I, I, any wrestling show at a casino which is just reeks of desperation. It's like the I think of like AWA at the Showboat. You know what I mean? Or I think of like the uh, the TNA show in Vegas where the main event Mafia killed Christian before he went back to the WWE, and that was really kind of the the end of that one of TNA's opportunities to to be relevant. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but I always associate wrestling shows at at casinos with desperation, even WrestleMania nine. And WrestleMania 4 and 5. <laughs> See, WrestleMania like, 5, I just kind of forget happened sometimes. It, it went straight from 4 to 6. <laughs> uh, and I think the other part is that they took this opportunity, like, oh, it was probably cool the first year to have it at... Uh, and that's also... Um, the picture for this episode will be Hulk Hogan in his hairpiece from from uh halloween havoc 1996 just letting everybody know <laughs> uh 
they it is another example of them trying to i don't want to say this was specifically done to cut cost but the the business aspects of wcw finding their way into the creative aspects of wcw where it's just it makes more sense for them financially and it's just easier for them to do the same show in the same place for five straight years when it's earned it it's actually a a gimmick that would work better if you took it different places yeah definitely i think anytime you're doing kind of a you know a freak show type thing i mean literally think about a freak show unless you're talking about coney island right the freak show was a traveling attraction you know didn't stay in one place exactly i think also yeah and they're just like we're gonna do the costume thing and the fucking the giant blow up pumpkin uh set which looks cool we're gonna do the same place every fucking year like that's not good promotion of your product in a way that makes people want to like go out and see your show. No, it's also crazy that they went back to the MGM grant. I mean, I'm sure they had a contract and that's why they went back, but after they burned the shit out of the town with Hogan warrior in 98, it's crazy that you would go back to the same building for the same event the next year and think that, I mean, maybe they were just relying on tourists and casino comps. Like I know that's one of the reasons they put wrestling shows in casinos because the casino buys a lot of tickets as comps and you don't have to worry about really promoting as much. But, I mean, did they really think that they were going to, you know what I mean? How many of the people who saw Hogan Warrior, did they really think they were going to draw back the next year? Exactly. And this is one of the shows that is easiest to sell people to go see. Like, as you can lean into the Halloween aspect and be like, you get a free soda if you dress up as your favorite wrestler. Like, it sells its fucking self and kids would love to like, but you have it in Las and Las Vegas is not a. I'm not one of those people. that's like Las Vegas isn't a real sports city. Do it one year in Las Vegas. Don't do it five years in Las Vegas after you did it two years in Detroit. Like, <laughs> I think you're forgetting the important point that basically as soon as Turner bought Crockett and it became WCW, they completely forgot how to promote wrestling. That it like all became about the television show and to some degree the clashes, but even that started to fade very quickly. And then the pay-per-views. Like they were so bad at thinking of ways to physically get people to go to wrestling shows. It, it's like it's like TNA in like 05 through 08, where you're like, Jesus, there's tons of good wrestling going on here. Like, why are they so incompetent at getting people to go to the shows? Yeah. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if that doesn't sum up late 90s, early 2000s WCW RIP, I, I don't know what does. <laughs> like, <laughs> why are they so much like TNA?
your tongue secure.